Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist, and the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DiBiase. Tonight, we are commemorating the 60th anniversary of the 1961 NFL Championship game where the Green Bay Packers played the New York Giants. And to help us out, we have special guest, pro football historian and author Terrence T.J. Troop. T.J. is one of the foremost historians of professional football. He has written numerous articles for American Football Coaches Monthly and was the football coordinator consultant for the 2008 George Clooney film Leatherheads and also for the 2021 film 12 Mighty Orphans. He wrote his first book in 2009 titled This Day in Football, and in 2014 he wrote The Birth of Football's Modern 4-3 Defense, a splendidly detailed tactical analysis of how NFL teams played defense during the 1950s, and a must-read for all serious pro football researchers. Coach, welcome back to the show. My first question is this. Please tell our listeners about why the 1961 NFL championship game is so significant in NFL history. Well, good evening, Matt. Um, I sure look forward to doing this tonight. The number one reason that that game is significant, though the Packers had been in other title games, this is the first time it's actually going to be played in Green Bay. And those Packer fans, when you watch the game film, boy, were they ready to cheer that day. When you're, when you're looking at the game films of the Packers during this 61 regular season, was I mean, they had lost the NFL championship game to the Eagles the season before. Was there any real difference as the way they played? What, did they change in any sort of way? Or was there like a more of a difference in attitude in 61 as opposed to 1960? Well, with, with their opening day loss to the Lions, who they had lost to on Thanksgiving Day in 60, it was, if anything, a wake-up call. And then they started winning, and they just gained confidence. They knew they were the best team. They just had to prove it. Um, they stumbled one game against the Colts. And the Thanksgiving Day game, where they beat Detroit in a really hard-fought game, that pretty much cinched it. They knew they were the team. If anything, the difference between 61 over 60 was a confidence level and the fact that um, the depth of the team, which I'm sure we're going to touch upon due to um, the, uh, some of the young players being in the military, just added to the strength of the team. Now, how many games, now, uh, just to tell our listeners, going into that game, their main, one of their offensive mainstays, Paul Horning, had, had been called up by the U.S. Army Reserves, and this was during the Berlin Wall crisis. How many games right. did Paul Horning miss before that NFL championship game? How many games was well, he out? in essence, he really doesn't miss any. Oh, okay. Um, there were games where he played little to nothing, but he was he was always there to do his um his thing in the games the difference is you know if you don't practice how sharp are you going to be that that's that's the number one issue but he's coming off a season for the ages scoring 176 points in 12 games and now he and he, and he wins the scoring title again in 61 with 146 he did not carry the ball in game 10 that year against the Rams, which the Packers won easily. And he did not carry the ball on the road um, in the Coliseum 
again against the Rams, and the Rams were uh, also ran that year. So maybe those weekends with the military, he wasn't needed. But, you know, he was basically there every week. And he did have some, outs, just as always, some outstanding games that year. It's just, um, if anything, the Packer offense was more dependent on Bart Starr's passing, and he is, for the first time, the full-time quarterback and Jimmy Taylor running the ball. Now, getting into that, is it true that before the game, the Giants defense was focused on Jim Taylor? They thought he was going to be the mainstay in that game. Is that true? Yes and no. Of course, they have to focus on him because in the regular season contest, contest in early December, the Giants actually had the lead early in the fourth quarter. But Taylor gains 186 yards. Well, my gosh, if you're going to prepare in a championship game, you again, you're going to go back over the film. You're going to look at a guy who gained that many yards against you, and he has to be a focus. But a key to this, and I think a lot of people don't understand um, Vince, he was a gifted chemistry teacher, and he believed in the right mix and match, meaning he believed in a balanced offense, more run than pass. But Green Bay's pass offense was excellent. Now, going in that championship game, what was the Packers' game plan when they faced the Giants? What were they looking to do? Well, when you study game film, and of course, I can't help myself, I always, I begin as a coach, the first thing I look at is the offensive line and the offensive line splits. If anything, in this game, they are pretty good sized. He didn't make them smaller in the cold weather on, on basically a frozen field. Vince made them bigger. Mm. So they've got, they're, they're going to widen out the Giants defense and they adjusted their blocking patterns as the Giants attempted a few times to adjust their defense, and it failed. There was no way you were going to out-game plan Vince Lombardi with your defensive front seven and, and um, fool his offensive linemen that were so well-schooled by him. Amazingly, uh, the Packers' offensive line, uh, they had some – they suffered like Jerry Kramer was out for the season. He had broken a leg. How were they able to fill the gap with his departure? I mean, didn't they have to? Didn't you tell me they had to adjust some of their linemen? You know, move them, shift them around to fill his departure. How did they do that? Boy, thank you for asking that, Matt. Yes, um, at the beginning of the season, Green Bay has such strong depth. Norm Masters and Bob Skaronski literally rotate and left offensive tackle. And when Kramer breaks his leg against Minnesota, Lombardi moves Norm Masters from left offensive tackle to starting right guard. Well, when you watch film of him, his game at right guard, he's okay, but he's not the answer. Well, he's a tackle. So the next week, Vince has Norm Masters at right offensive tackle, and seamlessly, and I believe the MVP of the team, Forrest Gregg moves from right offensive tackle to right offensive guard, and they do not skip a beat. He, Forrest Gregg was a superb offensive guard. So they don't change, they don't have to change their plays. And Gregg could make the blocks. Now, when I, now Paul Hornick scored on his first touchdown. I believe that was the very game's very first score. Was that on a power sweep? 
No, sir, it's not. In fact, um, that dovetails right in what we were just talking about. It's basically a give play over right guard behind Forrest Gregg. And Forrest Gregg, I hate to use the word dominate, but Dick Mojaleski, the left defensive tackle for the Giants, did not have a very good game. Forrest Gregg kicked his butt. And, you know, there's a gap because they had decent line splits already. Horning saw that gap, and believe me, Paul Horning knew where that end zone was. And he just, you know, in he goes, six-yard run. So it's basically just a straight give play from left halfback over right guard. Tell me, Coach, is it true that in that and it's 61 NFL championship game, didn't Paul Hornick set a new NFL record for most points scored by a single player in, in a championship game? Did he set a record? Yes, sir. He, yes, sir, he did. He scored 19. So now he holds a record for points scored in a regular season and points scored in a championship game. Not bad. Now, now Bart Starr, you were talking earlier about Bart Starr's passing, and he had a great passing game. In fact, in that game, he threw three touchdown passes. Were they on short routes? And, and also, what sort of a passing attack was he using in that game? Can you describe it for our listeners? Sure. Well, what happens is you would think that Green Bay, because of their running attack, that they would be more predicated on play action, and they could do that. But Green Bay's drop-back pass offense is excellent. They run pretty standard routes because of the size of McGee, Dowler, and Ron Kramer. They all are tall men. Um, patterns into the middle of the field. Star has a nice big target to throw to. Uh, there's a classic, as I watched the film, in that um, they would the Packers flexed tight end Ron Kramer. He's on the right, though we played both in the game, left and right. He's flexed. He's about three and a half yards from the offensive tackle, and he would just release up the field. The weak member of the Giants secondary is Joe Morrison. He's playing strong safety that year. It's a fish out of water. Kramer goes up the field, star sees him open right away, and delivers the ball. Kramer gets him a key first down. Star goes back to that play in the second quarter, only this time they have set it up where Kramer outside releases again, goes straight up the seam, Dowler hesitates, and then rockets on a slant behind Ron Kramer in the middle of the field, and Star puts it right on the money for the touchdown. The Packer pass offense may not have been complex, but it was systematically effective. Star's accurate. And he had good receivers to throw to. Plus, I might have, let me add real briefly here, Matthew. In the regular season game against the Giants, Bart Starr's passer rating, even though they win that game in December, early December, is 21.1. He's only 9 of 23 with two intercepted. In the championship, he is 10 of 17 for 164 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions, and a passer rating of 130.9, a dramatic improvement. Bart Starr rose to the occasion when needed. Wow. Let's get now, let's talk about that Packers defense because they were taking on the Giants who had a very potent offense. They had a passing attack of Y.A. Tittle with Charlie Connolly in reserve. You had Del Schaffner. How exactly did the Packers defense contain the Giants passing attack, especially the combination of Tittle to Schaffner? Well, when you watch the film,
film, especially I have, I'm fortunate, I have so much film of the Giants in the regular season in 61. Though Schaffner is the focal point, Kyle Rote is still an effective receiver. Joe Walton is an effective receiver. And Alex Webster coming out of the backfield has his moments. And Schaffner, though they, everybody thinks of him as a deep receiver, there was not any route he couldn't run. The problem in the title game is whether it's just a, it's whether it's a combination of the wind or Tittle just having an off day, and the fact that Jesse Whittington at that point in his career is the best right corner in football and always handled Del Schaffner well, um, all added together. And I, because it's a stat I truly believe in, why well, hate Tittle's passer rating in the championship game against Green Bay is 1.0. I mean, that, obviously that's brutal. And he just had a horrible day. So it's not like Green Bay is double covering Schaffner. Occasionally you'll see the right safety, Willie Wood, move over to help Whittington, but they did not double cover Schaffner a lot unless it was, you know, a ball really long yardage play where it was really obvious. Schaffner does not catch a pass till the fourth quarter. He has three catches in the game, and the game has long since been decided. Now, in the early 60s, the Giants had one of the most potent offenses in the NFL. And I know in his memoir, Out of Bounds, Jim Brown once claimed that the Giants from 61 to 63 had an offense that I quote, consisted of one, a quick plunge by Alec Webster, then a flare or screen pass to either the halfback or the flanker, and then finally a bomb to Schaffner. How accurate is that? Or was the Giants offense a little more complex than what the way Jim Brown portrayed it? Well, I can understand why JB would say that, but yes, it is a little more complex. Um, New York and Ali Sherman were very, very effective at running screens mm. to Alex Webster, tight end delays to Walton, and like I say, Roten Schaffner. Um, Kittle was on top of his game, and, and you mentioned earlier, there were a couple games where Connerly, at the age of 40, came off the bench, and he still was pretty accurate throwing the ball. And at that point in his career, Del Schaffner is the premier left or split end in football. And occasionally, the Giants will go and set one of their backs as a wing off of either the tackle or the tight end, and they were legitimately in a single back formation with four receivers. So there was a little more complexity to the giant offense. And they did run the ball. Bobby Gators is the is the halfback at the beginning of the year, though he had a little problem fumbling the ball. So um, at the end of the year, in his basically his only year in the NFL, Joel Wells is playing halfback and he's not much of a runner. So Jim Brown is correct in that Alex Webster runs inside running plays, not too many sweeps, but also could catch a screen pass. And then, like I said also earlier, Schaffner can run every route. He was very good at running a stop pattern at nine yards and making the catch and then running after the catch. Lots of film of him breaking tackles and with those long strides, turning the nine-yard catch into a 29-yard catch. Yep. 
Getting back to the Packers' defense, one common characteristic was that they always, even in the beginning from the early 60s to even at the end of the 65 to 67 dynastic years, they always had a great linebacking core. In, in the 61 NFL championship game, who were the Packers linebackers and how did how did they enhance the Packers defense? What sort of formations and coverages did they emphasize? And can you also tell our listeners about how great was a defensive coordinator, uh, uh, Phil Bankston? Well, this is um, a subject that I relish discussing. So I'll, I'll try and be as brief as possible, though, though this I don't want this to become war and peace. Bill Forrester had been a Packer for a long time. He had struggled attempting to play middle guard. He had struggled playing middle linebacker, but he was a big rangy guy who could run, and he was a physical player. By the time the NFL has truly gone to a 4-3 defense, and Green Bay has Bill Forrester aligned as the right or weak side outside linebacker with his size and ability to run, coupled with the fact that Bankston joins Lombardi in 1959. It was a match made in heaven. Bill Forrester, for three, four years, from 59 to probably 62, is the best weak or right side linebacker in all of football. In the middle, the Packers are blessed. Ray Nitschke is a wild man, but a lot of people just don't realize he was not the starting middle linebacker at the beginning of his career. He lost the job more than he wanted. They put him on the field. He would play out of control, and he would be replaced by Tom Bettis. Bettis was consistent, smart, could fill all the gaps. He just could not make the big plays. Nitschke did. During 60, Nitschke finally has won the job late in the season. And then, so going into 61, Nitschke is playing well. He goes into the military, and he's called away. When I'm watching film, there are a couple films where you see Nitschke literally overrun the play, get tangled up with an offensive lineman downfield, and start slugging that offensive lineman. Wow. The next series, you see Tom Bettis back at middle linebacker, and Tom Bettis started the championship game at middle linebacker and played the first and third quarters. Nitschke played the second and fourth, but in the two quarters he played, he played under control and played fantastic football. And on the strong side, Dan Curry, who had a great reputation coming out of college, has become the best strong side linebacker for the Packers. So they're big, they're rangy. In fact, um, sometimes when you look at Packer linebackers, they are almost the same size as the defensive linemen on Green Bay. Wow. Bankston was a brilliant defensive coordinator. He did more with less in San Francisco than any defensive coach in the league could have done. He really only had one quality linebacker there in Matt Hazel time. And when he is bypassed by the Morabito family, for the head coaching job with San Francisco, and Lombardi heard about it, he got on the phone right away and said, Bill, I have a job for you, and I'll quickly detail why. 1957, the Giants are defending champions. The 49ers are also tied for first in the West. They play on December 1st. Charlie Connerly set a record for fumbles in the game. Phil Bankston, as the D coordinator, 
San Francisco, outcoached the offensive coordinator of the Giants, Vince Lombardi, mm. and forced countless fumbles, blitzed, created blitzes every down. Lombardi goes, I can't have this guy coaching against me, so he hires him. So, <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, it's, 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 as, it's not only what Lombardi did, it's who he got on his staff. And he did not ever intercede. Bill Bankston was a quality guy and one hell of a D coordinator. Coach, in your opinion, who was the Packers' unsung hero in that 1961 NFL championship game, in your professional opinion? Well, the one that, again, I'm going to go back to because even though they're all mentioned on the film, and um, both Chris Schenkel and Lindsey Nelson do a fine job in announcing the game, Forrest Gregg is really the unsung hero because he just had such a good day blocking. But Ron Kramer had had, had so much promise and had just not really given Green. I mean, he had a hard time winning the job from undersized Gary Canapple. And this was a game where he shined, even though he, he, the amount of catches he had is not all that impressive. It was how he looked when he did it. And defensively, so many of them played well. Um, and because Tittle struggled, we have four interceptions in the game. So they, they all contributed in the game. So I would have to say if there's one man, it would be Forrest Gregg. Coach, I like to t uh, tell our listeners, the, uh, the other significant aspect of the 1961 NFL championship game was that it was Vince Lombardi's first NFL championship, the first of many to come. I mean, what? And he said that this game helped cement his legacy. I mean, now it made him a household name throughout all of America. Is it accurate to say that this championship win launched his legend? Absolutely. I mean, he did. Him and the Giants have such a crisscross path. When Vince leaves New York, I mean, his last game as the Giants offensive coordinator is the loss to John Unitas yeah. in the overtime game in 58. Yeah. So when he takes over Green Bay, they start out 3-0. and It's hard to imagine, but Lombardi lost five consecutive games. And one of those five is to the Giants. Yeah. Now, he rallies them, and they win their last um, four. Okay. That's a nice year. A nice year, seven and five, when, you know, everybody picked them for last place. We know what they do in 60. Yep. They struggle at times, but they're five and four, but they are the first NFL team to win three consecutive road games to win a division title. So, Vince is right, but the season ends, as we discussed last year, with a loss to a an Eagle team that Lombardi knew that they should have won the game. Yep. So what does he do different? He really doesn't want to seem panicked. He just continues to hammer home fundamentals and believe in his guys, and they are the ones that go out there and gain confidence. I mean, they're an eleven and three football team. In 1958, the Packers won one game. Wow. So in this championship game at home with those Packer fans, I'm sure that Vince went right to the point in the locker room. We are not going to be denied this year. 
and we got everybody here. I mean, the Packer players love Paul Horning. And to see him in that locker room, they thought, oh, yeah, we're ready to go. Coach, I want to thank you so much for appearing on the show again. Uh, you, 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 you're, you, you lead us through the looking glass. You help us look back into the uh, pro football's past with such beautiful clarity. And it's great having you on. And we're going to have you on again next year. I want to give uh, my, my fans, you know, next season, because uh, next week begins season three, season three. In November next year, we're going to talk about the 60th anniversary of the fame, almost one of the most famous Thanksgiving Day football NFL games of all time, the 62 Thanksgiving game against the Green Bay Packers and the Detroit Lions. And that will be next November next year. And Coach and I, we're going to talk about that famous game. It's probably the most famous matchup between the Packers and the Lions in the history of Thanksgiving Day football. And Coach, uh, may you have a, I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. May you have a peaceful, safe, and healthy new year, and may God bless and keep you always. Thank you, Matt. If I can throw in one last quick plug. For those of you that uh, have not heard of my Tuesday column at the Pro Football Journal, please go there today. It's almost eerie. I, my column today, I went into detail on the 1976 Oakland Raiders, and then later this afternoon, I heard of the passing of John Madden. So if you go there, I think you'd all be entertained and enlightened by my column. May and also rest in peace, John Madden. Please rest oh in my peace. God. He meant so much to so many. Yes. You take care, Coach. Thank you, Matt. Okay. Bye bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where this podcast will begin its third season, where I will be interviewing videographer Michael Ragsdale. Thank you and good night.